Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to season three, episode 23 of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Scott Lease, representing Scott Lease Consulting, Surf and Sales, and Thursday Night Sales, along with my good friend and co-host Richard Harris from the Harris Consulting Group and Surf and Sales. And uh, we have a special 420 edition of the Surf and Sales podcast today with uh, our new friend and uh, head of sales, Scotland Foss, head of sales at Scratchpad, one of my favorite products and favorite companies. Welcome to the show, Scotland. Yeah, happy to be here. Are we doing anything special for 420 here? Nothing it's already been a special one. Nothing that we can publicly talk about. So okay. So Scott, and it's Scott, a little it's a little early in the day, so uh, but, you know, we so didn't plan this too well. I need to call a little bullshit on this one, Scott. I'm a little disappointed on you because you know we did the tequila sipping episode. Oh yeah. And we we talked and we educated people about some tequila and we talked about sales and we you know went through all the, the things and clearly you came unprepared today. Yeah, I am unprepared. I apologize. Next year we will we will have a whole spectacle. We'll make a whole event out of it. Maybe we'll have like a collective podcast with like, yes. you know many, many members. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Richard, tell uh, everybody who the Surf and Sales podcast is brought. Yeah, it is brought to you actually by Scotland and his crew over at Scratchpad, which we really, really appreciate. Um, so Scotland will have you sort of give people the lowdown on, on the pains you all solve. Um, also, Sendoso. I uh, want to give a shout out to Sendoso and to Outreach.ai. Um, all these organizations are super helpful, supportive of the sales community. They participate in the sales community, which for me, if I'm looking for a tool, I think that's really important these days is like, are they participating? Are they supporting us as a whole? Um, so we appreciate that. And uh, we're, we're happy to have you here, Scotland. So maybe for context, tell people a little bit about you. You know, do you like walks on the beach? You know, what's your, you know, what's your favorite flower? And, and, and certainly, you know, mention a little bit about Scratchpad too while you're at it. Okay, cool. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited. Um, I'll I'll start by pointing out that you you are getting the absolute best version of me today. Uh, I we were at a well full- shit. I was hoping for the worst. It tends to make it more interesting. We were at a full company offsite. Our company has been growing, and so most of us just met for the first time in person in Austin. And Tuesday was a big day yesterday, and we ended it at a karaoke bar. Um, I think I left at midnight. And then my flight was this morning at 5.30 a.m. So, <laughs> Wow. Well done. I, have done. I have done this exact Austin to San Francisco <laughs> flight, the one that leaves. The yes, but Scott, did you do karaoke? In fact, I did not do karaoke. In fact, before. Scott, at the 420 event that we do next year, I think we have to do some level of karaoke. Well, the thing is, if I participated in the holiday properly, my anxiety and paranoia would be heightened. It won't be loose to uh, get in front of the mic and do karaoke, but that's besides the point. Scotland, tell everybody what Scratchpad is, what you all do, and why my investment in the company was so brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with like our mission, really. I think that says a lot about us is we're here to make salespeople happy. And um, it, it can really be a game changer. Some people even will shout out how it's changed their lives um, and what they're able to do because of it. Uh, but like to get into more technical aspect of it, 
it's it's the go-to-market workspace that's just absolutely delightful to work in. And so all the work that you do, like especially as sellers, we're constantly taking notes, we're constantly updating spreadsheets, we're managing tasks, and we have all these workflows and things. We're always doing the work, but we find ourselves doing it in uh, general purpose tools like Evernote or Notion or Google Sheets or something of that nature. And Scratchpad has all those components, the note-taking application, the spreadsheet, and the tasks all into one clean workspace. And everything is tied to Salesforce. So it's great for the, the end users. And it's really great for the business as well because they're getting high quality data. So let me, way. because I'm, I've not used Scratchpad. Um, yeah. Am I, and I'm thinking like a rep, right? Like I'm trying to think of the use case. So yeah. am I still taking my notes in Google Docs and other places or is everything in Scratchpad and Scratchpad has a um, spreadsheet application and it's got a Google Doc application and, you know, I set it up in a way that says, okay, for your calls, here's how you take your notes because this is our call structure. Like, is it like that or am I completely missing the boat? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really hard to answer that question because everybody works differently. Like you wouldn't imagine it, but if you watch sellers work, everybody does it so differently. And we're not here to come in and say, here's how you should do it. Mm -hmm. We're here to come in and understand how you do it today and show you a better way. So let me, so let me ask you this. So let's dig into me and I love getting into use case stuff. So um, I have a template of an email when I have a sales call, I have a template of an email. I'm actually taking notes for this one. Right. And I've got some things already pre you know, populated because I don't want to have to retype it. And then I have places for my notes for, and, you know, and then in some cases I'll put in things like, oh, this is the ARR and here's the LTV and here's what it's costing and here's my cost. And, you know, so I could see where rather than just having that as bullet points, maybe it's in a little part of a spreadsheet of my note, but is, yeah. how are you simplifying that for rich? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. Let's talk through that specific use case. So it's, it's a, it's a common one, right? People take notes and Evernote, Mac notes, notion paper all over the place. So with Scratchpad, we have a really simple, clean um, text editor tool, right? A note-taking application. So you can create your folders and you can nest folders within there just the same way you do with any other tool. You can have templates just like any other tool. But what's really unique about it is you can link it to Salesforce. And now that data is in your CRM. There's no extra stuff for you to do where you've got to copy, paste, this, that. It's, It's linked to Salesforce. And in addition to just being linked, to Salesforce, when you link it to, let's say, that opportunity or that lead or that account object, it's also going to populate any workflows that might be associated to that. So if you and I were talking and I was doing a discovery call and a lot of folks will follow a methodology like a force management, med pick, uh, winning by design, spiced, right? There's so many different options. And so those are typically field. There we go. We got to throw knee. We got to plug knee in there. You know, it is my fucking podcast, so you know. Yeah, well, yeah what am I thinking, Jesus? Jesus, that's right. You know, you, you, had, you had five hours of sleep at a karaoke bar. I forget. Just go over. <laughs> so, um, a lot of those tend to be fields in Salesforce, right? Right. And so, while you're taking your note, either during or at the end, you can actually update those key fields right there mm-hmm. on the side because you link the opportunity. We're going to present things that are relevant, like neat as a tile that you can fill in with the core fields in Salesforce. And the information you fill in 
is immediately synced into Salesforce. There's no extra steps. It's, it's just seamless, fast, fluid. Cool. Well, thank, thank you for walking me through that because now I yeah. understand. And Scott, will you buy me a license since you're an investor, please? So. Yeah, I mean, I should probably have a free license and yeah. I will lend it to you since I don't use Salesforce. Right, you don't use any. I'll lend, I'll lend it to you, I'll lend it to you. I want to know about the first year and a half, the life of a head of sales at a startup in the first year and a half that you've been there. And you've been there 16 months or so, so a little short. Uh-oh, Uh-oh. are we going to make it past the, the number? <laughs> I you're don't right, know. You're right at the, the marker. So tell people who yeah. maybe don't know what it's like Yeah. In that in that first year and a half and kind of, you know, the things that, that one should expect if they're in this role for the first time. Yeah. I'll tell you what, it's tough. It is, you, you can't really mentally prepare can, for can it. Can I interrupt one, one yeah. on, just for context, were you the first head of sales coming in or are you the second or third? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll give a little background. So um, I was actually an early user of Scratchpad. Um, I, I fell in love with the tool as an end user. As yeah, an just end answer user. the question. Were you, the, yeah. were you the first head of sales? So I, I was the first head of sales. That's okay, that's all I want. Now go answer Scott's question. Cool. So I'll jump in there. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you can't, you can't really mentally prepare for it if you're, it's your first role as, as a head of sales, right? Um, there, there have been a lot of ups and downs. I think I, people who are geared towards sales, they love that pressure and stress. Um, but when you're head of revenue, it, it's amplified, right? Like my background, I was previously a district manager overseeing a certain portion of the business. And like I was responsible for that being, but being in charge of everything, showing up to the board meetings, it's pretty intense. Um, so that's like high level. And then if, if we want to dig in on certain stuff, I'm happy to go a little bit deeper. Yeah. Get, t- tell people tactically, like, what are some of the things that you need to do and that you would tell people, oh, Make sure you do this yeah. on this role. This is a topic that, you know, I'm super passionate about. This is what I've spent my entire career doing, what you're doing right now. Um, so I'd just love to hear, you know, your experience. Yeah, I love that. So I think there's a few basics that, you know, anybody would do is you want to come in, you want to be thoughtful, you want to put together a plan. And part of your plan is going to be, let's put a forecast together let's put a capacity plan together, right? Lean on any of the data that you've got available to you to, to be thoughtful in that. At the same time, don't get too hung up on it. It's just a plan and shit's gonna happen. You're gonna have to adjust and be ready. Um, so that's, that's one piece is the forecasting, capacity planning, and just preparing, right? And being thoughtful with things like models. And then the other piece that is almost counter to that is, I would recommend don't get too process driven. I came in and I came from a formal training, right? And I come into something that's completely unstructured and crazy. And the first thing that comes to my mind is, man, we need to build a process around this. But if you get too bogged down and thinking that you have to build a process before just learning and going in with a very open mind, listening and understanding and just being curious, working with customers, working with the business and the people that have been here already. That was something that I almost fell into. I was lucky enough to have somebody say, hey, stop, don't do that. Don't try to build this perfect process. It's not gonna work, you don't know yet. 
just jump in, figure it out and learn. And then you can start to build the process. And actually, believe it or not, it's been, you know, I think you said 16 months. Um, now I'm just now literally building the actual, like defining the process, putting it in place, yeah. building it out in Salesforce. Super good advice. There's, there's three different types of kind of early stage head of sales operators. There's like the person that thinks and strategizes all, all day long. And there's the type that just does shit all day long. And yeah. then there's the type that like builds a system and puts in a process to track and, and monitor the thing. And if you over index on any one of those three things, you're in big trouble. If you strategize yeah. it all day long, nothing gets done. If you do stuff all day long, then you do things in a way that's not scalable. And if you put a system around everything, you choke the business and you can't move fast enough. So it's that's really right. uh, it's really tricky. So it's a good, it's a good call out. Scott, well, let me ask you this question. So let's go back to your first, let's say the first, maybe the second 30 days, right? Like first 30 days, you're just trying to figure some shit out, right? But maybe in those first 90 days, are you doing nothing but just being on sales calls? Like, I mean, maybe you're doing your capacity planning and your budgeting for headcount, you know, some, some operational stuff that's required. But anything that you're doing to drive revenue, is it really just spending time with your customers? Is that what you're suggesting for these early stage leaders? And if not, what else are you doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, thinking here on the fly, I mean, I spent a lot of time with customers, prospects, customers, users. Um, I would also even just lean in on the fact that I'm brand new and, and reach out to people and say, I'd love to get your perspective on this and talk to those, those key kind of decision makers or stakeholders that are involved in a deal coming in with, you know, no expectation, but to, to get to know them and what matters to them, ask some questions and be curious to start to learn about that persona. But yeah, I really, in the initial 90 days, I dove into deals. I dove into prospects <clears throat> and was closing deals. I was closing deals in the first 90 days, several deals. So would it be, I'm going to overgeneralize, would it be good advice to tell someone to almost be a product manager, but you still have to close the deal? Like, is that kind of the approach where like, hey, I'm building this product and I need to go talk to my customers to see what they want? to understand. Do you think that's a similar mindset or is it like, well, yeah, Richard, but not really because I'm looking at it from this perspective in a sales capacity. Yeah, maybe, maybe I would say exactly what you just finished there with is I am thinking about it from a sales perspective. And so I'm, I'm diving into any conversation and I'm actually not thinking about the product at all. I'm not thinking about Scratchpad at all. Like I know in the back of my head what we do, but I'm trying to take all of that out and be genuinely curious and really figure out what are these, what matters to these folks? What are the priorities to these folks? And, and if I can really understand them first, then I'll be able to start to share more about what we do. Yeah. Let's talk about the single hardest forecast for any VP of sales to make. Are you ready, Richard? Do you know what the yeah. answer to this is? The, I'm, I was typing a note with the single the hardest, very, the, the single hardest forecast you can ever make as a VP of sales at an early stage startup. Do you know the answer to this? The first one. The first one. And you know why? 
because there's no data whatsoever. Nobody yeah. has any idea what any of the conversion metrics are. Nobody yeah. knows anything. So Scotland, the board comes to talk to you. The CEO comes to talk to you and they're like, Hey man, uh, put together the forecast for 2022 and uh, let's see 2023 as well. How does a new VP of sales do that and make this forecast knowing full well that they're sticking their head in the guillotine while doing it? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, obviously it's, if it's the hardest one, like, you know, there's not some perfect answer. Right. But I guess I'll try to share like, how I approached it and maybe we'll see if I learned anything and I have anything to recommend. Um, so you said there's no data for me, there was just a little bit, right? So I had seen some deals happen. I had seen what people were willing to pay for it. I also saw that we were, we were doing some things where we were giving away, you know, free licenses, pricing integrity wasn't really what I thought it could be. So I was trying to come up with some ideas around what the average deal size would be what the sales cycle would be and, and go from there. And um, I started to think about how many folks could we hire? How many deals could they close? What would their ramp times be? And I just made assumptions, um, you know, assuming a 90 day ramp, no, nobody's going to deliver any quota up until 90 days, assume a 25% over a sign. So as you're building out your forecast, your model say, okay, we're going to close a million dollars. Um, over assign 25% so that you have a buffer. You know, people leave the company. Some people just might not be a fit for whatever reason. Yeah. So making some core assumptions, using what you can gather and collect and, and, ta and take a stab at it. And I think the other thing I would also call out is don't get pressured into picking a giant number, right? We're, we get hyped up. We get, we're, we're competitive, right? And someone says, I, th I think we could do this much you know, come on, let, let's go for this. And um, I leaned in on my, one of my mentors who was a president at the last company that I was at. And he, he just said, Hey, early success leads to later success. Don't sign up for some giant quota. Don't build giant comp plans for your reps. Be successful early on. And that's going to continue later down the road. I love the, uh, I think you use the phrase over a sign. Is that the yeah. phrase you used? I've never heard that phrase before, but I, I, I like it and it's super relevant to me right now because just this week I had a conversation uh, with a, a client of mine who was working through that first ever forecast and capacity plan and all that kind of stuff. And they modeled it out with X number of reps and it, it's like a one point something million dollar uh, number. And the way they had modeled it out, they beat the number by $5,000. That's it. And I, you know, threw a fit because there was no buffer, as I called it, no over assumption. So I think that's a really good, you know, point of call out to be thinking of, well, we could have churn, we could have, you know, rep churn, we could have people just not hit their number. Newsflash, not everybody hits their number, that kind of stuff. So that's uh that's really really good go ahead how do you so so i haven't built one of these in a long time right so hopefully maybe everybody knows but i don't what do you mean over sign so if they want me to sign for a million i sign for 750 so when i put together 
so the the over assign isn't really in terms of anything to do with my number that I put on for the company goal. The over assign comes into play when I'm building on my sales capacity plan and I'm thinking about how many A's I need to hire, how much revenue they're going to close. Um, so let's just say, for example, someone has a $700,000 quota and I'm building my model. I'm not going to assume that they're going to close $700,000. I'm going to assume they're going to close $525,000. Got it. Okay. And then how do you sell that to the board? Um, I, I didn't have to, to be honest. I kind of, I delivered a number with my CEO that we agreed upon. Um, the board was fired up about it. The number that we picked. Um, so and let's, let's say you well, don't other, have that board. The other thing, Richard, Richard, the other thing though, is it depends what people are trying to optimize here for. Because in the very beginning, a lot of times they're just trying to optimize for hit your number and, and they don't care how. They don't care about like productivity per rep and things like that, right? They're not looking at rep efficiency straight away. So you can get support. And if you lobby and have the conversation properly and you're like, listen, what do you care about here? Rep efficiency to get to this number or just making sure that I hit the number? Because if you want to make sure that I hit the number, then give me 1.5 number of reps that I actually need and we'll get there, right? That kind yep. of conversation is, is not unheard of at the very beginning. Yeah. You know, where, uh, where I also like what you said of like, these are the red flags, right? Where you're going to have churn, those kinds of things. The, uh, I will add one in there, particularly at early stage, because I went through this, is that you have to remind them that if you change the product and you pivot the product in any way, you will wipe out my old pipeline. Like I've been through that where it's like, hey, go focus on this for three months. Great. Oh, you know what? We came up with this new thing that we think the customers really, 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 really want. And we want to start selling that. Okay. Well, you just wiped out my pipeline. And you kind of have to remind, I think, some early stage, particularly the technical founders who've not been through it, right? The first time founders that they don't. And, and it's not because it's one of those things that they don't know what they don't know. They don't realize that. So they need to be mindful, not to say they should slow down product development, but they need to be aware of it. So that's the only thing I would add. I'd like to come back to you on something though. You talked about your CEO and founder. Tell people who the CEO and founder of Scratchpad is. Yeah, so the CEO co-founder is Puyan Salehi. Right. And then the technical co-founder is Sarus Karbasi. Yeah. And how sorry. many of these have they been through? Yeah, they've been, I mean, they've been together for over seven years, um, maybe even more than that. Um, I think they've been through quite a few, but the other significant one that got some legs was Persist IQ. Mm -hmm. Same same type of product early days as like the outreach right. uh, type of tools. And <clears throat> so yeah, they, they kind of have been through it together before. Yeah. And that, and to me, I think that's really important. That matters. So yeah. when you're looking to be that first head of revenue, you know, if you can look at your leadership and, and you just need to know what you're walking into. Right. I agree. Right. Like that. And that's super supportive to someone like you, because I know them too. And, and they are those kind of leaders. Like you can come to them and say, Hey, like if we mess this stuff up, it changes everything. And they're all going to go, yeah, we've been through it. <laughs> we know. So, um, yeah. I like that. Call out. I would throw a nut. So I think that you're, you're, you're right about that for a new head of sales, like definitely look into that background and think about how you're going to have to approach this and the things you're gonna have to convey. The other thing to look at too is like, where did where did the money come from? That was something that got me kind of excited about joining Scratchpad is we had Excel with Steve Laughlin and then we had Kraft with David Sachs. 
those are those those are kind of following smart money you know making sure that you're going with people that are doing their due diligence i think is another good thing to look for and you left scott off that list though i'm really (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, big time big time lead investor that's right Right. yeah Yeah. the the big baller i wrote i wrote a check large enough to buy them all lunch one day right i understand not as big as my check was i want to go way back because in the very beginning of our conversation you were talking about this is stressful this is not easy right I want people to know that this man, Scotland, has been hitting his number quarter after quarter after quarter. And he's still telling you this job is fucking hard and yeah. it's super stressful. So now imagine what it's like when you miss your number, yeah. or miss your number a couple months in a row or something like that. How do you, I know you don't want to think about or plan for like the day where you miss a number but you've probably missed a number once in your life before. Let's say the streak ends, you miss a number. How do you recapture the momentum? What are some of the tips, tricks, and strategies that you would deploy to get the mojo back? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, so I've been lucky enough so far since I joined to beat every quarterly number, beat annual number. We're at the end of our quarter for Q1 right now. so. We have a lot of ground to cover, but hopefully we'll do it. So hopefully I'll, I'll be able to continue to overperform. But yeah, maybe this is something relevant. Maybe we won't, right? And um, <clears throat> it's a good question. I think I would start with this. I played, I played college football and we didn't always win, right? Just playing sports growing up, we didn't always win, you know? I was on some successful teams, but I always found that if I knew that I had put in my absolute best, and we would always just say, like, if you if you really left it on the field, like, what do you what are you disappointed about? What, what could you have done differently? I think you should look back. Maybe you could have done things differently. Maybe you could have prepared and watched more film and, you know, done these things differently. 100 percent. You should do that and you should improve going forward. But I also I don't think you should you should go too hard on yourself if you put the work in. Um you know, you, you can't beat yourself up about it. I also think just in the culture not, in general. I am not good at that. Yeah. It's I tough. I'm very good at beating myself up over not performing as good as I possibly could. Have. And I think, I think. And I've got the text messages from Scott to prove what he said. Yeah. So I, bet. I think it's. I think it's part of the culture in general, like on the team, something that I did early on that I feel like I've actually lost a little bit. And I'm talking about it is it's like, we're here to have fun. We're here to enjoy ourselves. You know, like there's so much opportunity. Life is short. We're all going to die. Let's, let's make the most of this. Like yeah, let, let's really than missing your number. Even. Yeah. You miss your number, elevate your thinking for a moment here and really think big picture. Not that big of a deal guys. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, have a, I have a funny story for Scott. Yeah. For, about Scott when he first became a consultant and uh, he and I would always tell him I'm like you know because I was doing it before and I was like best part about being a consultant is you always hit your number right like you always do and I remember because you started your you started your business in October and you finished the end of the year in December and I texted you at the end of December and I said how did the end of the quarter go and and he and your response I remember this your response was oh wow I never even thought about it right um and I know that there was no rush. There was no stress. There was right. Big, big and now I, I willing to bet. Well, I do know because I've seen the spreadsheet. 
But Scott now stresses again because he, for Scott, he needs that motivation. So for yeah. him, he, I think, Scott, tell me if I'm wrong, not intentionally, but you thrive on the stress and fear of not performing. Whereas oh, yeah. Scotland, Scotland sounds like has figured out the, I can be stressed, but I can create some level of calmness, you know? Yeah, he's a little more zen. He's a little more zen than I am. Yeah, so that's, so that's what I want to know, Scott. Anywhere in your life, when do you think you created that Zen moment? Was there a big loss playing college football? Was there a big loss in sales where you were like, you know what, I just got to stop doing this? Or were you always that kid? Like, would your parents say, no, Scotland was always that way? It's a good question. <clears throat> I think I've always been a little more, I don't know, laid back or <clears throat> calm about things. I did have one experience that kind of changed things for me. I think sports really helped with that as well. <clears throat> Sorry, the karaoke is kicking in. Um, but I, I did have one like near death experience when I was 18. And it was something for me that really helped me. It helps me take that like back up high level perspective for a second here in moments where I'm really stressed out. And I think, Hey, if these are my problems today, I'm okay. So I don't know if perhaps that had something to do with it, but I feel like I've always been a little, a little more laid back, but also very competitive and driven. And I do, I do feel the stress hundred percent. I feel it. Let's, let's go back to a, a tactical topic. Again, you talked about how pricing integrity, mm -hmm. which is code for did we discount or not, yeah. you know, it was a little bit loose. In, in the very beginning. And one of the things that early stage startups in particular and early stage sales leaders are juggling all the time is that balance for like holding the line on pricing, pricing integrity, as you called it, versus our need for logos and revenue and momentum and even a morale boost sometimes because we've all had that rep who's like, been struggling and you just want them to get a deal so bad and they're like selling i can close this deal right now if i give them a 63 percent discount and you know your heart wants to let them do it but you know you shouldn't so how do you think about balancing pricing integrity versus the need for holding the line yeah so i think that it's something it, it happens gradually over time the pricing integrity piece um, so here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, some big stickler. If somebody has a deal they're bringing to me, that's with, let's, you know, let's say it's a small company, it's a competitive deal. They're getting this price from the competition. I'm going to say, Hey, let, let's, let's, let's get this done. Let's meet them where we need to meet them and let's move on. So it, it kind of depends on where I'm, where I'm at in terms of the deal size, um, and, and, and what it's worth it for us as a business um, versus, you know, spending time, spending cycles, losing to competition, those kind of things. So that's one thing. But I would say to like really back up and go to the beginning of pricing integrity in general, I think it's all about just selling with value. And if you if we talked about, you know, being curious, understanding the before scenarios and like the impacts of what's happening today and then figuring out where they're trying to go what those big positive outcomes are going to be and how they're going to get there. If you can figure that stuff out, your pricing integrity is going to be great because you, you're not 
you're not talking about pricing. You're talking about value at the end of the deal. I get it. There's always going to be transactional deals. Hey, let's discount, do this, that. And I'm, I'm not a stickler. I'm, I'm willing to, to play that game. But it's really those more strategic enterprise deals where we were able to maintain our pricing integrity, stop giving out free licenses, um, you know, upgrade from our team plan to our business plan, um, and then expand across different departments. Well, there you have it, Richard. That explains why we don't have a license. He stopped giving away free licenses and started holding the line. We caught, yeah, him on a bad, we caught him on a bad day. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I think the competition piece is important. And I, you know, I say this a lot in Scotland. Tell me, tell me if I'm right. Um, you know, you're going to make deals your first two years that you're never going to make again. To your point of, I need that logo. And yeah. if anybody's ever seen people who see my contract or ask for it, I literally have it built in that they're going to do a case study. They're going to do a quote CEOs. Yeah. Everybody's going to give me a quote that I asked for. And I make them redline that shit out because mm -hmm. I know they're going to ask for the discount. One, I don't give them, but two, if it's a big company and I want to, I'm going to at least have something later that I can come back to, 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 to what I think I heard you say, which is, how is this going to help me if I have to discount it? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think I think the same way about those things. Those are really helpful for the business. And if if we're going to give something, it's nice to get something in return. Yeah. And those are good options. Yeah, and I just have it built in. And you'd be surprised how many legal companies, legal teams never even pull it. Right. Yeah. Um, or the legal team will start asking for discounts or particularly the finance team will stop asking for discounts. Um because I asked for it. I have a question for you. How often do you, have you had to negotiate in your life around um, with a procurement department that's separate of your person? Um, for enterprise deals? Yeah. Uh, quite often. Okay. Yeah. And if you give a discount, what, what level of percentage are you asking for? Are, they, are you willing to give them? I mean, I would say for me personally, I have kind of a what like an ARPU number for us, an average revenue per user number that I'm right. trying to stay around. Um, and so a, a lot of it depends. Like I'm willing to give on, for example, multi-year deals. Mm -hmm. So if the term is a three-year deal, that's great for the business. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to give on that. There's incentive to do that. If it's volume-based, um, that's obviously going to come into but play. Would you give 10%, 15%? Yeah, I would absolutely do that. I would so, do even even upwards towards, you know, 20. If we're doing really a large. I'm going to give you a small suggestion. I don't know if it would work because every every business yeah. is different. Let's hear it. Most procurement departments, right? They have leaderboards, right? Here's the yeah. deal. Here's where it came in. Here's where I want to get it to. In many cases, they just want three to 5%. Yeah. They don't need 20 Right. So, but they know, particularly with startups, they can yeah. try to scare the shit out of you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And, you know, we, I think we've matured a little bit where we can be, we, we've been more um, savvy about that. And we've done more of the like two and a half, 5% mm -hmm. type of things. I agree with you. I think it's a good call out. Yeah. And, and then the other thing I would, and again, you tell me if I'm wrong, when you're dealing with procurement and you can't get to that final number, 
the piece I have to remind sales reps is, you know, you, you try to end that conversation that says, well, let me go back to my champion. Maybe there's additional budget they can find because mm-hmm. maybe it'll come out of some other project or something else. Cause that champion really wants this. And right. if you've done, and if you've done what you said, Scotland, uh, really showing the value and how this is going to support them, they're not about to let procurement blow this up over 5%. Right. They then have to go look at a new vendor, go through InfoSec, go through any security, like, you know, that's not worth it. So it's hard though. It's hard for startups in early stages because it's like, we need that deal. I have another uh, suggestion too, is don't be greedy. It kind of depends on your model. But for us, we have a land and expand play. So, hey, if, if the, the budget's too high, great. Let's just lower the number of users, okay? We, we can maintain our pricing integrity. We can lower the user count. It's a lot easier to expand once you have your foot in the door. There's a lot of companies where people only have a certain amount of uh, budget that they can spend before it gets escalated to a new level. So, hey, if it's $10,000, let's do a $9,900 deal. Let's get in and let's just do those expansion installments over the course of the year. Sounds like Scotland understands how to do money laundering because you don't have to pull <laughs> anything under 10,000. It is 420 people. These are the jokes. They're not getting any better. So. That's, right. That's I, right. I have I have two other things that I wanted to just give out as tips. Do it. Because you guys asked me at the very beginning, what is it like? What should you expect? We talked about capacity plan. We talked about not getting too process driven. We don't need to go deep on these, but I just wanted to point out another big piece is like laying out your hiring criteria that you're looking for and finding ways to get signal on it throughout the interview process, I think is really important and consistently revisiting that because as you change as a business, you're going to need different types of people to come in to help how you're changing. So that's one thing I'd like to just throw out there to people. The other thing I'd love to say, and Scott, you reminded me of it because you said there's three different types of people plan and forecast, spend time with customers or, you know, whatever the three examples were that you said, like just focus on the work. I was somebody that I was very heads down grinding, almost brute force last year, getting through the you're year. Just doing. I was in doing. My, in my example, you're one of the doers. You're I was, of, you weren't thinking and nope. you weren't processing. You were just doing. Yeah, exactly. Are you married and do you have kids? Yes. Wow. All right. A whole other discussion. We, we don't have time today, but that's important too. It's yeah, that is yes. But so I was, I was a doer and, um, and here's, here's what happened. We kind of hit a point where it's almost like things uh, sort of snapped. We hit this breaking point where it's like, okay, now's the time we've got to get processed or we got to do this, we got to do that. So I like what you called out about the three different elements and you have to balance all three of them. You can't over index on one of them. One of the things I found really helpful, I went back, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it, it takes a little bit of time, but I went back, I pulled my calendar for three weeks. I put it into a spreadsheet, what type of meeting it was, how long it was. And then I had types and subtypes. And then I rolled it up into a pivot table and I figured out where I was spending my time. And just it, like, you, you might think, you know, but when you reflect back on it and you look at the data, you really start to see where your time is going. So I would recommend folks that are kind of trying to figure out, maybe I'm over indexing on one area. Do a quick check and see where you're spending your time and reevaluate it and, and maybe make some adjustments. I love that. And it would probably be very scary for some people to be faced with the reality of the data of where they're spending their time. Yep. Yeah. 
Scotland, are you coming to Serpent Sale? I did I get an invite? <laughs> We're gonna do a barter situation. We get a free license and you get a free a free trip. There you go. <laughs> so nobody's supposed to be coming from scratch pad this year. You need to pester Nate about that. Yes. When is it? Well, there's one in a couple weeks, May uh, 10th to 14th, and then there's two different ones in November. Nice. So, so what you need to do make it happen for you. You go, you go all out for Mother's Day on May 8th, and then you tell your wife, "Hey, honey, don't you think I should deserve this?" (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is. He's going to go from a sales role to a, a. saving an account that's trying to cancel real quick yeah <laughs> if he deploys that strategy <laughs> uh, before we wrap we want to give a quick shout out obviously to scratch pad one of our sponsors we appreciate it um scotland we appreciate you, you making time for us uh also want to thank uh outreach check out click.outreach.io forward slash surf to check them out um as well as sendoso for sponsoring our podcast so Thank you to all of our sponsors and Scotland. I know we've got, um, we got, you know, we flip it here and sort of say, what, what questions do you want to ask us? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm coming in off the hip. So let's, let's go for it. I think one thing I would, I would ask is, and maybe, maybe you guys, I know you guys aren't exactly maybe managing teams today. I know you all have some pretty incredible backgrounds and you get to talk to a lot of incredible people. So Working with Scott's like managing a team. It depends on which personality I get. Okay, perfect. So this is a good question then. So um, I'm just, I'm curious, how do you or how have you heard people kind of best practices on keeping a tight assessment of the sales team and having consistent feedback, closing the loop on that feedback, helping them continuously develop? What, What tips do you guys have on that? It's hard, especially yeah. in startups. You're growing fast. You're all over the place. Someone like me is a doer, right? And we, we just brought in two other sales leaders, which is going to be fantastic for us. And it's going to boost with that. But early on, I struggled with that a lot. I'd How many people were you managing? Up to It got up to 10. Okay. Um, yeah, 10 AEs. Yeah. I, the only thing that works for me, and it would work until I would get large enough sales teams where I couldn't remember everybody's name. And that was between hundred and 200 typically for me is you talk about where you spend your time. And I spent time with my people. Mm-hmm. So after I got out of this, like initial kind of year one phase where I'm doing everything and I'm closing deals and setting up systems and processes and all that, where I spent my time was with my team. And that's everything from little Slack conversations, text conversations, phone conversations, to and from driving to the airport, things like that. Um, When we were in office, lunches, I would take a few reps to the gym with me a couple times a week. My one-on-ones were walk and talks. They weren't sitting in the conference room. And I did my best to understand what was going on in my, my sales teams and my direct reports lives, not their pipeline. I would sort of look at there's a time and place for that. and The data can tell me all that stuff. 
I want to spend time with people to learn things that the data doesn't tell me. And that informs, well, how's Scotland's, you know, mental health right now? How's Richard's physical health? I know who to push on, who to support and, and hold up, whose attitude is souring potentially, all this kind of stuff. So to answer, you know, my answer to your question is the work stops becoming looking at everything else and starts becoming looking at your people and spending time and pouring time and energy in there. That's what worked for me. Yeah. Well, I, it's timely because when I did this exercise and I looked back, I was spending the majority of my time on customer calls and not on, yeah. you know, with my team, with my people. Yeah. And I think that's one of the areas that I dropped the ball on. Yeah. That's an adjustment phase. And it's really tricky to nail like the timing of that. Right. Cause in the beginning, you know, they talk about those three types of uh, sales leader types, right? What you're doing, you have to do all this shit, but that has to pivot. Right. And, and, and you got to get out of that or it doesn't become scalable. Right. right. And now you're at a season of life in this world mm. where I got to spend time with all these people because yeah. you got 10, 12 people now. I promise you, if, if you don't put in effort, you don't know what's going on in their life. Yeah. The person that you think is rock solid is interviewing. The person that you think is, you know, not working hard has got a health crisis going, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so digging in there is, is going to, my opinion is that will yield a right. big reward. And as you think about that kind of 18 month rule, right? I think that's what you guys were referring to about right. head of sales, et cetera. It, I mean, the challenge really is, and it's, it's on me, it's on everybody is, can you adjust? Like, apparently I was the right fit. I came in, we had all the numbers, we delivered, we're yeah. here. But now, am I still the right fit? I have to make adjustments. These are these are the changes I need to make. Yeah, you're good. You're good so far at proving you can go from I'm making up numbers here, zero to five million. Let's say, right? You already did that. You nailed that. That's a lot of doing and setting things up. Now, what kind of leader do you have to be to go from this hypothetical five million to this twenty million plus right. revenue number that you get to eighteen months from today? Yeah. Okay. And how does that, how does that look and feel and sound? Yeah. 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 I think this is just a cool conversation to have. And I hope people benefit from it because we've all got to kind of take a step back and think, what do I need to, how do I need to develop, right? Some of us are in a spot where it's pretty continuous and, and maybe we're just, we continue to do the same things, but for people that are jumping into how to sales role and companies are evolving and changing and even AEs taking on new leadership type roles or team lead roles, you have to back up and think about that. What's that going to take? How am I going to be successful in that new role? Yeah, I, the only thing I'm going to add to this um, is something I learned from a mentor is that the soft skills are the hard skills. Um, I had that from a business coach. And Scott knows this about me, is that I'm, I'm very much a doer. Mm -hmm. And I struggled for a very long time making that personal connection um, I think I've gotten better at it in the last five years, even though I've not managed teams just based on my own experience and doing stuff around mental health and, and some other topics. But um, I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I've ever gotten from Scott. Um, having, you know, I literally worked for him. Um, 
and trying to figure that out. And he's my go-to person on that to sort of tell me, like, well, you need, you need to slow down and ask people these questions, right? Because um, I become that tactical doer of just like getting shit done kind of thing. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear you recognizing it. And I would heed every, every single syllable of what Scott just uttered. And I encourage people to go back and rewind that and listen to it about four times so it becomes ingrained. Um, well, it feels like a weird, abrupt ending, but I think we're at the end of the show, but it was good. Um, <laughs> well, people can turn this part off, Richard, when there's right. a long, awkward pause. Right. Yeah, they can just focus on the beginning part of the, the right. show. We never promise perfect. No, I mean, that's why we go an hour. Sometimes we always say a half hour and it's like, well, the juice doesn't really get squeezed out of here till the last 15 or 20 minutes sometimes. Yeah. So We appreciate you spending some time with us after your trip, man. Rest up. Yeah. Keep doing but, well. Scotland, what, what was your go-to karaoke song last night? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't even get on stage. The 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 line, the the list of songs was so long that by the time it hit midnight, I was like, I gotta go. I gotta like catch a flight in a few I, hours. I think you strategically did that. I think you were you made sure okay, you were last. I would have done the same thing. Right. Know, it's a it's a, a well-placed excuse. Well done. Well, the thing that the thing that blew me away is the people that are like fired up and ready to go put their name down in a song and they get up there and they crush it. So I got to enjoy that. Um, and I also want to just thank you guys. This was really fun. I enjoyed myself. I learned a lot. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to continue to listen to your guys' podcast and maybe check out the surf and sales trip you guys are doing. Right on. All right, Scott. Awesome. We appreciate it, man. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah.